0: This is Crimes of the Centuries. When word spread throughout Paris, Texas, that two members of the wealthy Hodges family had been shot dead, first shock, and then anger tore through the growing farming community. John H. Hodges had just recovered from a shattered leg that had nearly lamed him a year earlier, He'd been hobbling around on crutches for months after a crazy windstorm had knocked a tree on top of him. His neighbors were horrified to hear that he survived all of that, only to be killed alongside his own son, William, one morning in early July of 1920. There was no question who was responsible. The Hodges had been battling with some sharecroppers who farmed a leased portion of the family's land, and in the aftermath of the shooting, a pair of brothers from the Arthur family had hightailed it out of Texas. This proved their guilt just about as much as a confession would have to most people in Paris. Law enforcement officials rounded up some of the remaining Arthur family members, ostensibly for interviewing and safekeeping, though surely some in town hoped that by taking Kin in custody, they would manage to flush out the men they really wanted. Those two were Herman and Irving Arthur, a pair of young black men who'd had the audacity to try to move away from the Hodges farm because they'd gotten it in their heads that they deserved a better life than sharecropping had to offer, The Hodges weren't about to let them go without a fight. In fact, a few days before John and William were fatally shot, they'd been the ones armed, ransacking the Arthurs' home in search of money they were supposedly owed. Instead of that rampage convincing the Arthurs to stay put, it hastened their plans to depart, which led to the confrontation that left John and William dead. Now, with two prominent residents heading to their graves, the people of Paris set out not for justice, but for revenge, in a case that made headlines nationwide and lingered like a storm cloud over northeast Texas for a full century. John H. Hodges had been born in 1851 to farmer Douglas Franklin and his wife Anne Winkler in Tennessee. John was the eighth of 11 children, all of whom apparently lived to be at least young adults, if not full-fledged ones, which was quite a feat in the era. It appears that the year after John's mother died in 1880, he married a woman from Virginia also named Ann, though she was nicknamed Annie. The daughter of a Civil War veteran named Pleasant Sanderson, she too had grown up in a farming family. John was about 30 when the two wed, while Annie was four years younger. The couple settled in Texas and had four children, their first being Vinkley Meadow, a daughter apparently named in a nod to John's mother's middle name. William was their second to last. John was a well-to-do man, owning several hundred acres, and had a good name among his friends and was a popular citizen, according to the Paris Morning News. Looking at census data and various directories, it seems safe to say that both John and Annie came from families who were A-OK with slavery. I based that on Annie's father's enlistment as a Confederate soldier in Virginia, as well as the fact that the family relied on sharecroppers in the Reconstruction era.
1: Sharecropping was an economic tool used by white landowners following
0: the emancipation of, of enslaved people after the Civil War. This is history professor Brandon T. Jett of Florida Southwestern State College.
1: And this was a tool used by these landowners to continue to extract labor out of largely African-Americans, although not solely, but largely African-American laborers who, who were not given land after emancipation and instead were kind of thrust into this situation where they were no longer enslaved, no longer had places to live, quite literally, and had to be thrust into this capitalist society with not much to offer other than, than their labor.
0: Supporters of the setup would say that it was a win-win for both parties. You had white landowners who didn't want to work the land themselves, and you had black laborers who were willing to work it.
1: In the idealized version of what sharecropping looks like this allows a black family a black worker to work independently work their own land even though they're leasing it from someone not work as part of a a gang of laborers which is how they worked as enslaved people it also afforded them the opportunity if they had a series of successful crops to save a little bit of money and then again this, this idealized version save up enough money buy their own land and no longer have to lease it from a white landowner
0: But, as is often the case, the ideal was a pipe dream. The reality often worked more like this. Come season's end, the white landowners would tally up the money it had cost their sharecroppers to launch the season, the cost of the land and the seeds and whatnot, and then deduct that from what the crops supposedly brought in in profits. And wouldn't you know it, a lot of times their math showed that the profits didn't cover the costs. So the landowners would say...
1: It turns out you actually still owe me uh, $100, right? But don't worry, just work a little bit more next year. And then next year, maybe we'll have 100 extra dollars that you can then pay back to me. But then the next year comes around and the same thing happens. And so what what ends up happening is you have these these black farmers um, who were hoping they could use sharecropping as a tool of kind of economic advancement and instead um, it becomes this tool used by white landowners to perpetuate black dependency um, and maintain a labor force in a very kind of dependent situation that was very hard to get themselves out of because um, you weren't allowed to leave if you still owed money. And if you perpetually owed money, you would never be allowed to leave.
0: How many sharecroppers the Hodges quote-unquote employed isn't totally clear, but what is known is that they at least had the Arthur family leasing land from them. The Arthurs were a Black family helmed by parents, Scott and Violet, who married in the 1880s and had a 25-year age difference between them. Scott was the older of the two and had been a full-fledged adult when slavery was outlawed nationally. In the 1910 census, he listed his occupation as a farmer and head of household in a family boasting nine children. As Jet said, the era didn't afford people of color many educational opportunities. Census data suggests that neither Scott nor Violet went far in school. Violet listed her highest education level as the fifth grade. They envisioned better futures for their children. Both Scott and Violet had been born in Alabama, according to the 1920 census, but moved to Arkansas en route to Paris, Texas. Their first child, a son named Ed, with two D's, was born in 1887. Herman followed in 1892. That was followed by a nine-year-old lull either in having children at all or having children who survived because Herman's younger brother, Irving, didn't arrive until 1901. ¶¶ As Jet said, this was a difficult time in American history because emancipation might have been technically declared, but Black people didn't have much access to education, to land, or to money, which made it tough to eke out a living doing anything other than what they'd been generationally taught, which was to work other people's land. For the older generation, the Scott Arthurs, this surely still felt like an improvement compared to slavery, but Scott's children had a different perspective, especially Herman, because Herman had heeded the call of leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois, whose 1918 editorial in his publication The Crisis called on his community to fight alongside white soldiers as the Great War, better known today as WWI, unfolded. Du Bois wrote of the war that, quote, "...we of the colored race have no ordinary interest in the outcome." That which the German power represents today spells death to the aspirations of Negroes and all darker races for equality, freedom, and democracy. Let us not hesitate. Let us, while this war lasts, forget our special grievances and close our ranks shoulder to shoulder with our own white fellow citizens and the allied nations that are fighting for democracy. We make no ordinary sacrifice, but we make it gladly and willingly with our eyes lifted to the hills. End quote. Paul Jay of the Real News Network. When he takes this position on World War I, it's at a time when, just before the Russian Revolution and the communist movement and much of the left movement around the world, is taking the position that workers of each of different countries should not slaughter each other and the workers instead should fight their own elites. And instead of taking that position, he winds up. Closing ranks because he hopes it leads to decolonization. So it was a controversial stance. Especially on the Black left. This is Du Bois scholar Anthony Montero on the same program. You know, uh, he supports President Wilson's entering the war with the condition that one, it is a war against the aggressor, Germany. Two, that the peace after the war would be a democratic peace, which would mean steps to decolonize Africa, a process begun under a newly written international legal system with the League of Nations. So that was the thinking behind his stance, and in the end, some 400,000 Black Americans served during World War I. Herman Arthur, a 20-something poor farmer's son from Texas, was among about 200,000 sent to Europe.
1: He's faced Jim Crow his entire life, disenfranchisement, segregation, and just all the little indignities that go along with being a black southerner in, in like the heart of the Jim Crow era. And then all of a sudden he goes to France, right? Where they are not treated like that. You know, Not that white people in France aren't racist, but they certainly weren't treating black service people who were over there fighting to save France from the German empire, right? As poorly as black Americans were used to being treated in the United States and in the Jim Crow South in particular.
0: Herman stood shoulder to shoulder with white soldiers in the war. Not only that, but he was invited to march in a victory parade in Paris, this one in France, not Texas, where he would have been applauded just the same as the white soldiers alongside him. And then he came home, where he was not cheered, where his family leased and worked a white man's land, and that man claimed the family still owed him money at the season's end.
1: These returning servicemen from World War I came back and they said, wait a second, I just put my life on the line. I'm trained in military tactics. I'm proud. I'm wearing a uniform. They weren't going to be second class citizens. They weren't going to allow white landowners to exploit their families any longer.
0: Herman encouraged his family to leave the Hodges farm. It seems he had quick buy-in from Irving, his younger brother. How the rest of the family initially reacted isn't clear, but the Hodges were definitely not pleased. For starters, they said that the Arthurs still owed them money for previous season's crops and thus could not leave. They were indebted and not free to go until that debt was paid. In late June, John and William Hodges apparently went to the Arthurs' home and ransacked the place, either looking for money or looking to intimidate the family. William reportedly had a gun pointed at the family while his father tossed their dinner from atop the stove and threw their household goods into the yard, according to a story in the Philadelphia Tribune. Then the men demanded that the Arthur men take off their shoes and clothes and the Arthur women remove their dresses, which the Hodges took with them, supposedly on the grounds that the Arthurs owed them money. If the goal was to make the family stay, it did not have the desired effect. Herman and Irving were more adamant than ever that it was time to leave. On July 2nd, three days after the confrontation at the Arthurs' house, word that the family was packing up to move away from the Hodges' land reached John and William quickly. They returned to the Arthurs' home. What precisely happened next is disputed, but the confrontation ended with both Hodges' men dead. Contemporary reports stated that both men were shot, which is true, but it's worth noting that William's death certificate also described knife wounds. Whatever happened inside that home, it appeared to have been an escalation more than an ambush. John H. Hodges died at the age of 63. His son, William, was 30 years younger. Both men were married. As Brandon Jett said, Herman and Irving had no illusions about what was coming for them after the deaths.
1: They flee north, knowing full well that their lives are at stake.
0: Their fears weren't only rooted in the fact that they were black men who, justified or not, killed two white men in the south. They were black men who had killed white men in Paris, Texas, specifically.
1: It has a very, very violent and bloody history some historians have argued that it is in paris texas where the the first spectacle lynching takes place in 1893 with a guy named henry smith who was accused of raping and killing a four-year-old white girl um they they tie him to a stake torture him for for almost an hour and then douse him in gasoline and set him on fire in front of a crowd of some estimates say 10,000. i don't know the actual number but it is a lot of people
0: That was by no means the only lynching to have occurred in Paris, by the way, but it's one of the most historically significant. Herman and Irving knew they were wanted men, and the first newspaper account of the Hodges' deaths confirmed that. A headline July 3, 1920, on the front page of the Galveston Daily News read, Possies seek Negro slayers of Texans. The subhead? Wealthy farmer and his son are victims of shooting near Paris.'" When you read those initial stories, by the way, it's clear that the local newspaper reporters had preemptively taken a side on the matter. The Hodges are described only as victims, but also some of the stories glossed over the whole Arthur family simply wanting to move away subplot to the shooting. In fact, one story in the McCurtain Gazette went so far as to say, quote, the Negroes were slack about working and refused to work last Saturday when the landlord wanted them to do so. Mr. Hodges and his son went down to talk to them about it, end quote. You know, just a friendly chat. Then the story describes a bullet tearing through Will Hodges' jugular vein, causing him to bleed out. Quote, the father pushed the door open and started to enter to protect his son, the story continued. As he was entering, a charge from a shotgun took effect in his head and face and tore away part of the skull, causing the brains to be scattered all over the walls. He was killed instantly. End quote. These stories were graphic and effective. Posse's scoured the region day and night, looking for Herman and Irving. They managed to find Scott Arthur and three of his daughters, who had left earlier than the two brothers, according to some newspaper reports. The family was imprisoned, supposedly for their protection. Enough people were on the lookout for Herman and Irving that they couldn't escape. When they stopped running in Valiant, Oklahoma, police and a posse from Paris, Texas caught up with them. An Oklahoma sheriff reportedly tried to keep the Arthurs in his jail to let the law take its due course, but those who had come to collect the brothers would hear nothing of it. They took the men back to Paris to the Lamar County Jail, where, for a brief time, it seemed like the brothers might live to see mourning. As night fell, however, the crowd outside the jail grew in size and temper and finally stormed the place, breaking down an iron door to reach Herman and Irving. As one news story reported, There was no disorder except the yelling of the crowd as the Negroes were brought out. The prisoners were taken directly to the fairgrounds north of the city where a stake and fuel had been prepared. There they were burned." The affair was over in an hour and a half after the Negroes had been taken, end quote. After the burning, Herman and Irving's charred remains were tied to the back of trucks and dragged around town to serve as a warning to other black families in Paris.
1: This is designed to send a signal to the rest of the black community that this is what happens, right? This is what happens when you challenge white authority, when you try to leave and you don't wanna be a sharecropper anymore.
0: As if this all isn't bad enough, I should warn that the next detail is particularly horrific. According to a witness account published in the Philadelphia Tribune, quote, the three Arthur girls, aged 20, 17, and 14, were in jail on the pretense of protection. They were severely beaten for screaming while the mob was taking their brothers from the jail. Later on in the night, they were taken to the basement and there assaulted by 20 white men. After which they were given a bucket of molasses, a small sack of flour, and some bacon and told to hit the road. End quote. I want to add, though, that I think those ages are wrong on the sisters. According to census data, there was no Arthur's sister as old as 20 at that time. There were four sisters total. The oldest was 16, the youngest was only 10. Also, at least some of the rapists were reportedly police officers who threatened to kill the sisters if they ever told anyone what had happened. But the torment of that awful night wasn't even over yet. As one story said, quote, The city was in an uproar and confusion and people were afraid to retire because it was told over the town that the Negroes were arming themselves for protection and to avenge the burning of the Negroes. The citizens of the city were called over the phones to arm themselves and report on the public square at once, end quote. The mayor of Paris organized a group of about 250 white armed men to patrol the quote-unquote Negro section of town, to tamp down fears of retaliation, which is ironic because the only rioting that was documented was committed by white people breaking into Paris stores to steal guns to supposedly protect themselves from the black people who didn't retaliate. By morning, worries of race riots had subsided, meaning the short-term impact of the lynchings had largely passed. But the long-term impact was only beginning. If the participants in the Arthur brothers' horrific lynchings had aimed to send a message with the crime, it seems safe to say mission accomplished. Though it seems the message they sent maybe wasn't the one they had intended. After Herman and Irving were killed and their sisters assaulted and told to leave town, the story made headlines nationwide. Now, that wasn't rare in and of itself. That situation Brandon Jett mentioned earlier, the one in which Henry Smith was lynched before a crowd of up to 10,000 people who believed he'd raped and killed a little white girl, was also reported in newspapers nationwide. But the reaction was pretty tepid. The
1: white community in Paris really comes to the defense of the lynch mob and said, look, we know what happened was was regrettable, but look at what he did, right? The crime that, that they think he committed was so heinous that we don't feel an ounce of, of sorrow or regret for how he was treated. It's the only way you can deal with people who commit acts of violence like that. And this was reported in the local paper, in, in regional papers. One guy, J.M. Early, who was, who was a prominent landowner and businessman in Paris, writes an entire book Defending what happened in Paris in response to the the publicity that is garnered around the country.
0: But the response to the Arthur brothers' lynching was markedly different. For starters, the Arthurs had been trying to leave their situation and had been blocked from doing so, leading to the Hodges' deaths. That's quite a bit different than the Henry Smith case, in which the victim is an innocent little girl whose actions can't possibly justify her death. Secondly, Herman Arthur was a veteran. He had fought on behalf of his country to defend democracy. And he wasn't just killed, trying to live a hard-earned life as a free man upon his return. He was hunted for days, doused with accelerant, and burned alive with his little brother. Most white leaders in Paris denounced the lynching
1: you have one local preacher, Robert Shuler, who really comes out against the lynching and really aggressively going after those who are responsible.
0: The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People encouraged protests in the wake of the lynching and lobbied the governor of Texas to quote, use all the power of your office to bring the lynchers to justice, end quote.
1: There's a, a meeting between white city leaders and black city leaders. They come together to, to kind of discuss race relations and and how they can, probably most importantly for the white community, keep black people from fleeing in mass and kind of smooth over some of the racial issues that they have, which is pretty unprecedented, right? Like how how often would white city leaders meet on a relative plane of equality with black community leaders to say, hey, let's let's deal with our collective issues.
0: Granted, given the era, this is a super low bar. Still, it's noteworthy that white leaders in Paris had consistently looked the other way when Black people were terrorized in town. This time, they felt the need to try to bridge the divide. That said, it didn't really work. Black families fled Paris by the hundreds. It was part of the so-called Great Migration after the Civil War, during which millions of people moved north from southern states. They weren't fleeing racism altogether, of course, because that was plentiful in northern states too, but it wasn't as overtly codified as in the South. Now, you might think that towns so eager to disenfranchise members of a certain community wouldn't balk at those members moving away, but that's not what happened, because those communities were built off the free, or at least cheap, labor of the people they were so hostile toward.
1: There are a number of cases of white people in communities all across the South, really demonstrating their displeasure, their unease, their dissatisfaction, their anger that that Black people would dare leave. And they react violently.
0: But the Arthur case marked a tipping point in Paris. Town leaders who normally might have looked the other way this time supported a thorough investigation to try and pinpoint who was responsible for leading the mob. The outcry was so great and on such a broad scale that it seemed Paris's future depended on it. One story read, quote, "'Citizens at a mass meeting yesterday adopted a resolution recommending a rigid investigation to be made in the recent outrage committed against the laws of our state and the peace and dignity of our country,' End quote. Within weeks of the lynching, a grand jury was convened, and by July 29th, two men had been arrested." Charles Lucky and Tom Dobbs. A news story reported that another man had fled to San Antonio, while yet another had, quote, disappeared from the city shortly after it was apparent that public sentiment did not support the action of the mob. It is probable that the governor will offer a reward for his apprehension, end quote. Eventually, five men, all white farmers, faced charges. The remaining three were Wilbur C. Clough, Ernest Coggins and T.D. Holderness. At least one never saw trial. I found a news brief reporting that the case against Coggins was dismissed after his lawyer argued he was homesick when the lynching happened and wasn't part of it. And those who did get tried were transferred to the nearby town of Sherman in Grayson County. The thinking there was that because some 2,000 to 5,000 people watched the Arthurs burn, it might prove tough to give the men accused in the case a fair trial. The judge who transferred the case said getting an unbiased jury in Lamar County would be utterly impossible. Whether the men found impartial jurors in Grayson remains a mystery, because the court records have long since disappeared.
1: Unfortunately, all the court records in Sherman that were held in the county courthouse were burned in 1930 when a mob of white people... Um, were trying to kill a Black man. I don't remember what he was accused of, but he was in the courthouse and, and couldn't get him, so they set the entire courthouse on fire. And so we lost all of those records. But I, I think an important thing here is that there was an indictment anyway that is really unprecedented in the Jim Crow South, and especially in a place like Paris.
0: I think it's fair to say that's the only upside you can find with this case Even without official court records verifying as much, it's pretty clear that the indictment was a slap on the wrist for those involved. I found a newspaper brief in 1922 reporting that Tom Dobbs was acquitted in the lynching. Based on the brief, the judge overseeing the case chastised law enforcement for presenting a half-assed prosecution, or as the newspaper worded it, failing, quote, to bring the proper witnesses before the court for convicting leaders of the mob, which he said might easily have been done. End quote. The judge, Silas Hare, also criticized a Lamar County official who, according to testimony, allowed 12 of the mob to enter the jail and take the Arthur brothers to begin with. The judge said, quote, The officers must first enforce the law if mob spirit is to be done away with. End quote. In the aftermath of all this, by the way, Annie Hodges, John's wife and William's mother, moved in with her daughter, Vinkley, and her daughter's husband, who, according to the 1930 census, eventually became the Lamar County Sheriff. I'll mention that I found his name, William Bud Walters, in a 1935 story in which his testimony helped clear an officer charged in the death of a black man. By that time, he was actually chief of the Paris Police Department. After Herman and Irving's deaths, the rest of the traumatized Arthur family hid in the woods for weeks until the Black Masons' Lodge raised enough money to buy them train tickets to Chicago where they resettled and never looked back. There's a famous photograph of the family, solemn-faced but finely dressed for traveling, that ran in the Chicago Defender, an African-American newspaper founded in 1905. The defender used the Arthur's deaths to encourage Black families to move away from the South, even going so far as to probably embellishing Herman Arthur's death. One report said that not only did Herman say he had no regrets about killing the Hodges, but he would do it again, and also said he lit a cigarette as he was being burned. I can't imagine that this is true, but as Jet said, there's a message to glean from it even being reported
1: what message it would be designed to spell. It's like, look, if this guy in this most vulnerable of moments can can look white people in the eye, smoke a cigarette when he's being burned alive, or say, I'm, I'm not apologetic for killing those two white guys, I would do it again and I'll do it to anybody that threatens my family. That that is sending a signal to the rest of the black community around the United States, right? To like, we can be this assertive too. If Herman and Irving Arthur can do it, we could do it too.
0: After the Arthurs moved, they had no interest in ever returning to Paris, Texas, and neither did their descendants, at least until the centennial anniversary of the lynching in 2020. That's when Melinda Waters, a descendant of J.H. Hodges, invited some of Arthur's descendants to a memorial event, according to the Chicago Tribune. Waters wrote the Arthur family a letter apologizing for an ancestor's role in the ordeal. The letter read in part, I am writing you a hundred years belated to say that I lament the monstrous lynching and murder of Herman and Irving Arthur. I admire Herman and Irving's courage to remove their family from an unjust labor system and sacrificing their lives to do so. I am sorry for the ways the white community, my family, and myself have been complicit in both my biases against Black people and in accordance with the system that continues to disproportionately allow violence upon their bodies, end quote. Janice Walton Roberts, a granddaughter of one of the Arthur's brother's siblings, embraced the apology. The city never offered any type of apology. She told the Tribune, adding, quote, I appreciate it, because her letter was something that needed to happen." To research this story, I owe a big thanks to historian Brandon Jett, whose paper on the case was a huge help, as was the interview he granted to talk about it. I didn't find a well-done documentary already in existence, so what you heard here is now one of the most detailed accounts of the case there is. Special thanks as well to journalist Naomi R. Patton, who helped me find the source material. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries Podcast Facebook page.